You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. The 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another Western Rookie bonus episode brought to you by Go Hunt. Today we have a little bit different bonus episode. So you've heard about Idaho's over-the-counter or general tag um, sale date. You've heard about Alaska's applications, and we just had the Wyoming non-resident elk. Today, I'm going to take a quick step back before the bulk of application season comes, and I'm just going to share with you some lessons I've learned in the West because I really want you guys to be successful, and I want you guys to hopefully not have to learn some of the things I've learned the hard way for yourself, and you can skip that step and be more successful and faster than I was. That's my hope, and hopefully some of this stuff will help you as you're doing your applications for this season. So this week, I'm just going to share some of the most important lessons that I've that I've picked up personally from hunting the West. So first off, let's dive into some lessons around research, right? Finding units, finding tags, finding hunts. Whenever I pick a hunt, you know, you've heard me talk about it many times. I absolutely love the filtering 2.0 tool. It's my favorite tool out of the entire Go Hunt suite. They're all amazing, but I use filtering 2.0 the most just to find hunts, learn about different things. And when you're finding a hunt and when you have finally picked that unit, have multiple hunt plans ready to go. I always burn through ideas and plans very fast in a hunt. You know, Typically, I'll get out there. I like to see a lot of the unit right off the bat. So if I can get out there a day early, that's perfect to drive around, check out the roads, see where access is, which roads are open or closed, depending on the time of the year and what kind of uh, roadway it is. But I like to see the unit. And that usually starts ticking some of my hunt plans off the list. Um, I might get to a spot, especially for deer and antelope, where I thought this was going to be a great area. turns out it was grazed all summer long, and there's absolutely no feed left. I usually cross that off pretty fast. Um, Maybe I'll get to a spot, and there's seven or eight different camps set up on this one trailhead back into a single area. You know, for elk, I'm probably going to go somewhere else. That's a lot of people on a single trailhead. So have multiple plans ready to go. This is where I use the maps feature I will go in I will make a folder for the hunt so it might be 2024 Wyoming antelope and I'm going to start putting in hunt plans I'm going to start dropping pins you know here's where I can park here's where I want to hunt here's the access route sometimes I'll even draw lines now that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to follow that line when it comes time to hunt but when I'm at camp and I'm looking through all my lists of options, and I'm going, you know, option A didn't work, option B didn't work, option C didn't work. You know, oh, here's option D. That looks interesting, but what was I think? What was the plan here, you know? Having as much information as possible is really helpful when you're in 
the hunt because you you're you're not as focused as you are back at home looking doing your e-scouting you know you you might be tired you might be exhausted you might be ready for bed um you might be distracted a whole bunch of things can be going on so the most the more information you can put into your hunt plan the better you know where are the water sources in that area where's the human pressure probably going to come from you know what route did i want to take what are some vantage points like glassing knobs especially you know, especially if you're doing any rifle hunt, if you're doing mule deer, antelope, glassing knobs are a huge part of your hunt plan. So try to put all that in, you know, hunt plan. You can even make a subfolder, hunt plan A, and you put all this stuff in, or you can say, you know, access for hunt plan A, water, hunt plan A, you know, food, hunt plan A. Just have all that ready to go because I think most of the hunts we've gone on, I've burnt through like my first three plans almost instantly on the you know first day or two. So have that ready to go. Use filtering 2.0 to find them. Use the maps to to document your plan so you remember it come season. Here's another one. The terrain, when you're doing your research, I have never got to a unit and said, oh, this looks easier than it did on the map. Every unit that we've hunted, the terrain in person is always way rougher than it looks like on a map. So be prepared. When you start seeing those lines getting really close together, and you think, well, this is just going to be steep, but we'll do it. Sometimes those turn into impossible passways, passageways. So be prepared. You know, I would say, I would say be pessimistic when it comes to the terrain. Know your body, know what your limits are, and then be a little, you know, keep in mind it's going to be steeper than it looks on the map. So be ready for it. Here's a tip that I didn't necessarily follow, but I think it's a very good tip or a very good lesson learned for anyone that's newer in their Western hunting journey. Focus more on opportunity than trophy size. And the reason I say that, I, um, you know, for archery elk, we've done a lot of, of um, opportunity hunts, but the two bulls that I've shot personally were with rifles, and they were both, one was a limited entry once-in-a-lifetime unit, the other was a, a midpoint pretty good unit. And so there I actually switched up and went a little bit more to the trophy side. But for the general hunts, if you focus on opportunity first, there's a couple things that, a couple magical things that happen. First of all, typically opportunity hunts, you know, when I say opportunity, I'm talking about lots of game, lots of access, lots of public land, lots of opportunities to get eyes on an animal. When you're doing that, you're going to see more animals generally. When you see more animals, first of all, it starts to reinforce some of your um, research and scouting, your e-scouting. It helps build up your confidence. It will allow you to get on stocks, get on um, get on animals. If you're archery elk hunting, it'll help you have more encounters. Having high, like target-rich environments when you're early helps you get those reps in to start learning because getting... Finding the animal is really only half of the hunt. Getting close enough to punch a tag is at least half, maybe even more than half of the hunt. And so you want to get those reps in. There's nothing more disheartening than going on a western hunt and not seeing an animal you're going after for days on end or even the whole hunt. I've done it before. I've gone on hunts where there wasn't a legal animal that I saw until the last day of the hunt. Um, or at all, you know, some members of our group have gone on elk hunts and never seen an elk. So it's, that is the most disheartening experience you could possibly have in the West. And I I really don't want any of you to ever experience that. 
but it will happen. And so that's where I'm saying focus on opportunity before trophy size. Now, there's a caveat. That doesn't always mean it's a different unit. Some trophy units have a ton of animals. They're usually harder to draw, um, but you can still have an opportunity hunt in those zones. The one thing that comes to mind is like a Utah spike-only tag in some of their limited entry elk units. So you can go get the spike only over the counter and you're going to have a ton of animals around you. You're going to get experience calling in bulls. You just can't shoot the branch antler bulls. You have to, you have to shoot the spike bull, but you're going to have a target rich environment. So that's one caveat. Um, So it doesn't always have to be different, but a lot of people want to shoot a big elk and I don't blame them or a big antelope or a big mule deer. And I'm right there with you, but I believe, I truly believe you're going to get to the goal faster and more often by hunting areas with lots of lots of uh, game, getting those reps in, eventually maybe weeding through some of the animals. You know, your first year out, maybe you shoot the first legal animal, and that's great. I've done that before. I think it's a really good way to go. Maybe the next year you, you set the bar a little one step more challenging um, and, and keep going, but by getting those reps in, you're, you're having excitement along the way, you're having a great time, and eventually – you know, magical things are going to happen. The more time you spend out in the woods, the more chances are you're going to you're going to tag a really special animal. So, that's my advice. I don't always follow it, but that's that's something that I think will have a, help you have a greater experience. And there's no better tool than the Insider Service filtering 2.0 for that as well. Trying to figure out what are the herd demographics, bull to cow ratios, buck to doe ratios, amount of public land. That's a big one. Um, you know, sometimes there's some great animals in a unit, but if there's only 10% public land, it's going to be a very frustrating hunt. And, um, and you're going to feel it. You're going to feel like, man, we're just wasting our time. All the animals are on private. We're knocking on doors. We're not having success. That's a big part of an opportunity hunt is knowing how much public land you have. And with those first three things, I think the summary is be ready to adapt. I have, um, rarely ever gone on a hunt where everything went as according to plan A, um, typically in the West, you have to adapt on every hunt, whether that's where you're going to camp, someone's already there, you know, where you were going to park, there's already a truck there, you know, the areas you're going to hunt, maybe they were grazed heavily, maybe there's been a drought, maybe the animals just aren't there. So be ready, be expecting to adapt. Don't be ready for it. Expect to adapt. Expect to have multiple different plans, have you know, a wide variety. I've got some high elevation plans, some middle elevation plans, some low elevation plans. Um, maybe I've got plans way over here in this terrain type. Maybe I have plans way over here in that terrain type. Have a wide range of plans. When something doesn't work for me, I usually go to the other end of the extreme. So if the timber's not having the deer sign that I want, I'm going to switch over to the sage flats and the draws. If that's not going to, if you know, if up high isn't where the elk are, I'm going to go back down low. I'm not going to work my way to chase them. I'm going to try to jump ahead of them. That's something I learned from Randy Newberg and watching his content is if you chase them and you only have four or five days, you probably might not find them until the fourth or fifth day. But if you jump all the way ahead and come back into them, you know, that might help you get on, get on good sign faster. And so keep that in mind. Be ready to adapt. Spend the time to learn the food and water sources. I kind of touched on that in the multiple hunt plans, but especially coming from the Midwest. I look at a piece of property for whitetails and I go, oh, here's cover, here's food. I instinctively know these things, right? Here's egg, soybeans, early season, that's going to be a huge draw. Cut cornfields, late season, huge draw. Where's the cover next to those egg fields? There's going to be deer there. When I go out West, it's much more challenging to identify food sources because there's not 
typically, you know, row crop egg. Sometimes you get center pivots of alfalfa and you're going to see a lot of deer and antelope in those. But, you know, when you're out in the mountains, be able to recognize what the food sources are for the animals because that's where they're going to be. There's going to, wherever they are, there's always going to be a food and a water source nearby. And it's really important to know the food. The water, a little bit easier. You spend a little bit of time on a map. Some of the map layers, especially on Go Hunt, have water icons already on the map of potential different spring locations. But when you start to look at a map, you can kind of start to figure out where the water's going to be. Um, a lot of drainages in the West have water somewhere on them. You'll find, um, there's, you typically, unless a unit's known for being dry, there's typically a lot of water. You just got to know where it is. And, and add those to your hunt plan. So those are some of the overall research lessons that I've learned that have kind of bit me in the past. Like, you know, not having tons of plans, thinking my plan A is going to work out, um, over underestimating how rough terrain is, um, focusing a little bit too much on trophy size rather than just getting out, seeing a bunch of animals, um, you know, not being, not expecting to adapt, you know, kind of having being forced to adapt halfway through a hunt and then just not documenting food and water sources. For example, if I get on a deer and antelope hunt and I find a place I wanted to hunt was been grazed all summer and there's no grass, I move on because I know I've done it enough times. There's probably not going to be as much deer and antelope using that area. Antelope maybe a little bit more, but deer, you know, typically if it's grazed really down low and it's been a drought year, it's not a good sign. So now, you know, pivoting into like maybe elk specific things that I've that I've picked up. One thing that has bit me more often than not is. We will get into a calling setup with archery equipment. We'll hear a bull at 200 yards, and we will try to cut the distance to, say, 100 yards. And then we hear a bull again. We hear the bull again at 300 yards and say, hey, we came in 300, or we came in 100, and now he's 100 farther, right? He must be moving away from us. So we'll move even faster, and we'll bump a bull at 75 yards. And so what happened? Well, there was two bulls. Looking back, there's there was two bulls. We heard the first one at 200. We cut the distance to 100. He was still there, but a different bull sounded off. And we assumed that there's only one bull because some of the units we've hunted in the past, generally we're not getting into that super frenzy, you know, rut that's just on fire and bulls are going off everywhere. Typically, these general units, these higher pressured units, there it doesn't work out like that. We've had it happen in the past, but typically it's we hear one bull, we work one bull, and it's easy to get in the rut of assuming there's only one bull, but just be prepared. There's, there could always be more than one bull, and I've bumped this last year. We bumped twice now um, a bull that we thought had moved away because we heard him farther. It turns out there was two bulls. Just a super bummer when that happens. Um, one thing that has you know, really been frustrating is elk hardly ever stop in the perfect spot. You know, if I'm... If I'm whitetail hunting, I've got my lanes cut. I've got my food plots out. When a deer walks in in the food plot, you know, I just have to wait for that deer to be broadside. I can be very patient, pick my perfect shot. I've had five or six opportunities now at elk, um, or five or six elk encounters that I remember distinctly being very close, close enough for a shot that I didn't have a shot because the elk stopped with maybe a branch in front of the vitals or maybe it was this or that. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen. And the point that I want to make is be sure you can move and, and adjust, maybe lean a little bit. You don't want to get caught moving, of course, but there's been a couple times where I've set up and I couldn't adjust. Maybe I'm taking a knee on a hillside 
and the, I needed to move four feet over to shoot because the, the vitals were covered by a tree or um, that's happened to me twice now. Vitals covered by a tree. If I was able to lean or move a little bit, I could have done that. Um, when you set up calling sequences, never set up behind the, the hide. You know, like if you're going to hide behind a pine tree, that elk could come in and 180 degrees you can't shoot. So I always hide in front of something, not behind something. Be prepared to be flexible with your shot opportunities, and it's, it's likely not going to be perfect. It's, you're likely not going to be able to see the entire elk um, and, and have that perfect broadside shot. So be prepared to, you know, have to shoot, you know, right next to a tree, or maybe there's a pine tree with some, with some branches that are kind of getting close to the vitals, being prepared to lean and get that opening you need. Don't wait for the perfect opportunity to just magically appear. Cause it's, it's rough. <laughs> um, another thing, this one's bit me, this one, I still remember. So we were hunting in Montana and we were working a herd, and it was a it was this little, it wasn't the big ridge, but there was this little ridge, um, and it was pretty steep on both sides, and both sides were clear for about 60, 70 yards. And I was on one side, and the herd was on the other side, and so I leaned up and over, and the cows were working at about 60 yards. And so I was ranging it and getting ready to shoot 60, while the bull came up above them and came around a tree at like 35. And due to the angle... And the difference in distance that I was prepared for, I was trying to range the bull and make sure I knew what my precise, you know, shot should be. Like, what should I shoot it for? And I just simply didn't have enough time to get all that done and get a shot on this bull. It turns out the you, he was at like 39 yards, but with the elevation, I should have shot for like a 32-yard shot. And so... My point here is I could have easily killed that bull if I would have been prepared to shoot anything inside 40. I think that's a huge skill you should have. You should be able to look at anything inside 40 and know what elevation does, like angle does to your arrow, and be able to shoot that without ranging it. Because if that bull is inside 40 yards, there's likely not a lot of opportunity to pull out your rangefinder, range it, adjust your bow if you have a dial, draw back, get everything done, and do it without being seen. So that one bit me bad. It was a nice six-point bull. I still, every elk, every elk season on the drive out, I'm thinking about that encounter, and I'm thinking about what am I going to do different? What am I going to do different this time so that doesn't happen again? And it's just being confident, shooting enough, shooting angles enough to know what I need to do instinctively so I don't have to range when something's inside 40. Very easy if it's inside 20, but I think that 20 to 40 range is where you got to extend that skill out to. Um, last thing, elk specifically, bring a knife sharpener or multiple blades. So I shot a bull in North Dakota, and I had three knives, no sharpener. All the knives were razor sharp when we started. And by the time me and my dad got done breaking this bull down, we were like hacking like axes with these knives because they were so dull from going through that hide. Um, it was a thick hide. It was a really old bull. But if we would add knife sharpeners, and I've, I have a little knife sharpener in my kill kit from now on, um, it adds, you know, it adds a few ounces, but it saves me hours of work. And so I'll never hunt again without it. And, and I've butchered bulls with the knife sharpener since then, and it is a game changer. Even if I have to sharpen my knife like 10 times, you know, gets a little dull, I just quick sharpen it up. It's got angled serrated um, or angled uh, ceramic sharpening 
um, elements, and so I don't even have to worry about the angle. I just quick tune it up, keep going. That has, that's been a game changer. So get a knife sharpener, get a little knife sharpener, and keep it with your kill kit, specifically for the elk or anything bigger. I mean, if you're moose hunting, for sure, bring a knife sharpener. I'd rather have one knife and a sharpener than like three or four knives. So with the mule deer and the antelope. So this is kind of a different kind of a different hunt altogether. So archery elk is our main thing, so a lot of those very different style of hunting. With the mule deer and the antelope, one of my one of the things I go to most often on a deer or an antelope hunt is being mobile, whether that's foot, ATV, trucks. I want to cover ground as fast as possible. And this is how I shed hunt as well, by the way. If anyone's seen the backdrop and all the antlers that we've picked up, this is how I find antlers as well. I cover ground incredibly fast until I find something worth slowing down for. So with sheds, that's, you know, large areas of incredible amount of tracks. And then I'll slow down and start to grid. With elk and mule deer, I'm looking for where there's just a lot of game. There's a lot of sign. Early mornings, late nights, we're seeing deer, antelope, middle of the like We're finding antelope. Just because a piece of property or piece of land looks good doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to spend a lot of time there. I'm going to move really fast until I find recent, like MRI, if you would. That's a big term in the whitetail world right now, thanks to Drury Outdoors, but most recent information. So they're usually talking you know, trail cameras and, and in-person sightings. When I'm out west, MRI is one-day-old or less um, droppings, maybe two-day droppings, um, water holes that are just tore up, um, in-person sightings for sure. But I'm going to move really fast. And a lot of times I'll move fast with the truck. I'll check out areas. I'll go in a mile or two. I'll look. I'll scout. I generally don't hunt the same area twice um, until I start finding lots of games. So, you know, I'll hunt a morning area, plan A, evening plan B, next morning plan C, next evening plan D. At that point, I'm starting to reevaluate my plans. You know, have any of the four plans worked so far? Yeah, you know, plan A didn't work. Plan B was a little better. Plan C didn't really work. Plan D was terrible. So now we got to decide do we go back to one of the four plans and start focusing in, or do we keep going in maybe bigger jumps? Plan E, plan F, plan G. We're moving farther to doing some really crazy things. And so I cover ground a lot. Once we find areas that look good get past that first or second rise um get past that first or second obstruction from the road from like from what you can see from the road you know that would be the first rise go past that maybe go past the next one because time and time again i think i've shot actually the two biggest mule deer I've shot, which aren't giants by any stretch of the imagination, but the two best mule deer I've shot, both of them were so close to the road that you could have likely shot the deer from the road. They were just tucked behind something that you could not see the deer from the road. One mule deer I shot, we were below a road. The road was up above. I could hear trucks up on the road, and we were hunting below, and I, you know, I was shooting into the side of that hill from a different hill but that deer was within 300 yards of a road. Just couldn't see it from the road because he was off the edge. Um, another one in uh, Montana, same thing. He was sitting up high around a, 
the ridge kind of curved, and he was on that back side of the ridge from the road, from the main road. So being able to get off the road to see that next, you know, first or second group of of um, features and land and all kinds of different things, it's super helpful, especially with the mule deer and the antelope. Um, just getting that, getting past that first rise makes all the difference in the world. So that's one thing to keep in mind when you're on those types of hunts. The other thing is have plans not only for the deer and the antelope, but have plans for human pressure, especially on deer hunts and antelope hunts. Predict where the human pressure is going to come from. Um, So you can basically say, you know, the main road, the highway, the tar, what's the first gravel off that? There's going to be a lot of hunting pressure on that gravel. Um, I use maps for this. I just look and, like, if I was looking for the easiest places to hunt, where would I go? And you're going to find pressure there. For example, river roads. Um, What I call a river road, so you'll get a road, and typically, like, major rivers will have a road going up each side of the river, and out west especially, they might go 40, 50 miles before you can cross the river. And every river road that I've ever hunted around, there's always been a ton of traffic going up and down the river road. Typically, you'll find tons of game on the private land in the river valley. The public might be on the other side of the road. I've always seen a ton of trucks there. So be prepared. It doesn't mean you can't hunt in that situation. Just be prepared to have a lot of human pressure up and down both sides of the river roads and stuff like that. Um, so I would add that as well to your, your e-scouting plan. Use your maps. Kind of kind of know that if you're going to be hunting there, there's going to be a lot more people. And maybe that just means you dive in deeper off that river road. Or maybe that means you go around and come in from the other side on a different smaller road. But that's a good tip to keep in mind, especially on the deer and the antelope. Um, now, finally... The gear in general, just some some different tips and tricks for gear. Number one, practice with your gear. Um, I've done both. I've, uh, you know, this last year we spiked out, and we've never done that before. And so I bought um, I bought a, a different sleeping pad. I bought a backpacking back, uh, sleeping bag, and I bought a, like, one-and-a-half-man tent. So it'd, it'd be, like, couples. Like, you wouldn't really want to share it with your elk hunting buddy after two days without a shower. But if it was like your wife or your spouse or your husband, it would be a little bit less weird. Um, so that's the size of the tent. But it was um, not your normal like two tent poles crossed over each other tent. It was a little bit different style. And so I set it up in the front yard and used it. And I'm really thankful I did because come using it on the mountain, it was pitch black dark. We're doing it all with headlamps on on some ground that wasn't necessarily flat. And so knowing how it's supposed to go very helpful. Um, I think that one's relatively intuitive, but don't even the simplest thing like setting up a tent, which I've been doing my entire life. Um, when you do it for the first time on a mountain in the dark, you might learn something you wish you would have known ahead of time. And that was the case with that tent. So be prepared, um, with all of your gear for sure. Don't underlook anything. You know, I got a new water filter this year, so I just tested it out a bunch of times at home to make sure I was comfortable with it. Everything was working the way it should. Um, but when things are crucial to your hunt or your survivability, like water, make sure you practice a lot with those things. Um, one thing that has saved us in the past a lot on our Western hunts is tire chains. Um, so, and with this, it's kind of be prepared for non hunting things to go wrong. 
when we plan our western hunts, it's easy to think through like, oh, here's a good area. If that place is too crowded or doesn't work, here's another area. And we come up with all these plans for if our hunt doesn't work out. And I think some people forget that other things can go wrong too. Flat tires, bad weather, getting stuck, icy conditions, things break. Um, so be prepared. Bring t- We always bring tools. We always bring an impact. We always bring um, some sort of like heavier duty bottle jack. Um, if my dad's along, we'll probably bring three different shovels and three different types of jacks because he's very, very prepared. Um, but almost every hunt we've had something kind of go amiss that we we were happy to have the tools. Um, one year we had a ranger tire pop on a mountain, and so we had to go up and get a jack and, and tools in there to take the tire off, bring it to town. Um, air compressors are a huge thing to bring out. If you've got, like, some type of 12-volt air compressor, that's at most every hunt I've had to change air pressure um, or fill a tire, plug a tire, fill a tire. So be prepared for all those other things to go wrong and have kind of a plan for some of these common things. Popping tires in the West happens all the time. So uh, I know, you know, I refer to Randy Newberg a lot, but he's obviously an excellent voice for the Western hunter. And he always says bring two spare tires because we pop one so often. And if you pop one on your way to fix your spare, now you're really in trouble. So be prepared for all the non-hunting things to go wrong. And then finally to summarize everything um, is a quote from John Barklow who um, runs Knowledge from Storms and, and a very, very knowledgeable outdoorsman, survivalist, backcountry um, enthusiast. And he says, knowledge doesn't weigh anything. And what he means by that is all the gear you could possibly put in your back to save every little um, burden. A leatherman, a knife, a knife sharpener, all these things to help you, they all add up in weight. What doesn't add any weight is knowledge. So if you have the knowledge to do something the knowledge to use your tools in a different way, the knowledge to use the resources around you, trees, limbs, branches, rocks, you know, the knowledge doesn't weigh a thing. So never, never forget to, you know, take for granted what you know and what you could learn. Just adding skills, how to make fires with different resources, all these kinds of things can really help. And and it doesn't weigh anything to your pack doesn't make you any more tired at the end of the day like carrying different lighters and different fuel sources and x y or z wood so that's kind of the summary um that's some of the most important lessons i've learned in the west and i know i know if i can help anyone with avoiding some of these different uh road bumps if you will or speed bumps i would be very happy to do so so And if you guys have found any unique lessons learned on your Western hunts or any of your hunts, send us a message. Send us an email or send us a DM on social media on Instagram. I'd love to uh, read them off and share those with other people if you want to send them in. So thank you for listening today, folks. Hopefully this helps you in your research season. Kind of think through a couple of different questions as you're doing your applications. And hopefully you got a tag. And come this fall, you're putting some of these lessons to use on on bringing home a trophy. So once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here today, folks. Have a great day.